What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and I'm going to be a host for Pariah Nation today. Although last season was cut short, obviously I had to go on my own personal break, but we're back. This is season 16 of Pariah Nation, and we're going to be discussing a very, very important current affairs topic. And I've decided to title this episode, South Africa, A Ticking Time Bomb. We're going to be looking at the protests, and we're going to be discussing further themes around that protest and you know the, the riots as well, the looting. And essentially we're looking to explain what is going on in South Africa. And I have two guests over here who are actually located in South Africa. We have Leila Bera and Dasha Naika. I will just start off with Leila. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and what's been going on? Yeah, what's up everyone? Unfortunately, we did lose Leila in this podcast due to technical issues so if possible we're going to see if we can feature on a future episode regards in regards to south africa but for now we're just going to introduce dashin and get right into the episode hope you guys enjoy thanks very much for having us on the show today adnan my name is dashin naika i'm an academic and writer from durban south africa but i have been living in Joburg for the past five years um as Leila has said, just to contextualize and frame what's been happening over the past week, South Africa has seen its worst post-apartheid protests um, and riots uh, over the past week. It's spread from Wazulu Natal to areas of Gauteng and resulted in widespread damage to property and key infrastructure such as highways, logistics, warehouses, and communication towers as well. Yeah, thanks to both of you for finding the time to come on. And I'd say that from, I mean, as someone who's lived in Johannesburg for two years and um, uh, I've managed to get a glimpse into what sort of the inequality looks like. And I've had a sit down with a couple of people from South Africa just to hear the historical analysis of what's going on in the country today. And I'd say that for me, it was not necessarily shocking uh, to see what was happening. Um, it, I was just very much distraught looking at the videos and, you know, seeing all these different people, you know, going into like overrunning malls, overrunning blood banks, etc. Um, it just shows that perhaps there's a lot of people who are uh, put in a position of desperation. I think the pandemic has definitely weighed in, but it's already worsened the inequalities that were there post-apartheid. So, I mean, I just want to know from, from you guys, as people who are already in South Africa, what specifically happened and, you know, this, this past week and what was your reaction when it first started? And have, has anyone, do you know anyone who's been caught up in this and like, what have the experiences been like? We just want to get, uh, you know, first person experiences of what's going on in South Africa. So guys, we are back. Unfortunately, we did lose Leila due to some technical issues. Hopefully we'll be able to get her to chime in and maybe I can just get a quick recording from her and just, you know, get her on the ground experiences because I know that she was located quite close to where the riots were actually happening. Uh, but I want to briefly just go back and perhaps ask uh, Dashin about his experiences on the ground. So you're located in Johannesburg where it wasn't as... Um, it wasn't as heated as, for example, in KwaZulu-Natal. So could you just tell us the nature of the protests and how they kind of transformed into riots and the looting? So what exactly just what, what exactly happened in Joburg this week? Yeah, so just to provide, uh, I think, the timeline 
of it uh, and the sequence of events that have led to this. Um, I think for some time, what has been hinted at uh, by people in former President Jacob Zuma's network is, uh, as Carl Niehaus, his, the spokesperson for the MK MVA said, all hell will break loose. Um, what's funny now is hearing him being admonished for such statements and him saying that it was merely a warning rather than a threat for what would happen. Uh, but we did see um, uh, that emanating somewhat uh, after the after Jacob Zuma handed himself in uh, to the police. Um, what we saw initially was protests that then uh, changed somewhat into attacks on property, into looting that began in KwaZulu Natal, and then in Gauteng. Um, I think very much a reflection of South Africa and South African politics is that uh, the first and most severely affected areas are black townships and the damage to properties and shopping centers we saw in Katlehong, Soweto, the only sort of standing to use that term uh, shopping center in Soweto is Maponya Mall, the rest were attacked, looted, closed for the safety of, of the employees and the property, I would, I would say. So we see that in Johannesburg, I stay, I would say in a, in a middle-class area, these areas, the suburbs are always the least and the last affected by any crisis in South Africa. Um, so we see in, in, the, in black townships already underserved in terms of infrastructure, uh, and in so many ways, here we see this in the retail sense, underserved in retail infrastructure, once those have closed, as they are now, uh, the after effects of this are uh, difficulties in obtaining food um, and other necessary groceries that have been happening now. So yeah, what we saw was um, damaged property of, of uh, yeah, a variety of property what has come about afterwards? I think initially a very facile sort of superficial uh, attempt to, to characterize the riots was that it was just riots gone, gone out of control. Uh, what we have seen is that they were very much in control and that a lot of these uh, were coordinated by uh, by what we're now seeing as many in Zuma's patronage network. I think Zuma's imprisonment spells the end of the road for that patronage network. And this is the last ditch uh, disturbing play at, at destabilizing the state that in many ways has ousted that network. Uh, what has happened, it is, it is, it is found uh, a fault line in the deep longstanding inequality in South Africa, and in that way has perhaps gone beyond the control of those who coordinated uh, these, these acts of what the presidency is now calling economic sabotage, to use the words of the presidency. Yeah, I feel like there's, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for giving that, giving us that insight. <clears throat> and I think that just obviously from an outside perspective, uh, many people might be shocked 
and they might look at their TV screens or they may go onto Twitter and find that this and this is happening and they might actually be shocked. <clears throat> As you said that uh, that specific person was criticized and they tried to make it seem that you know he was threatening. I think he was just stating the truth. And I've, I've said this before as well. South Africa is a ticking time bomb. And I think that even um, if you want to look at the optics of it and how it's been reported or how it's been shared, there's a lot of things that I would like us to sort of reflect on. First of all, I think we, we need to look at how, in my opinion, there's some of it that has to do with Zuma, but a lot of it has to do with general inequality. And I'd say that if anything, this was just sort of like an opportunity for people to sort of break those class lines and you know those yeah class lines built around race and i mean there was another guy on sky news he's a researcher that was also being interviewed and they also did mention that spatial segregation in south africa is still very much a real thing and surprisingly i mean surprise surprise it's usually white people in upper class neighborhoods and black people that are living in lower income neighborhoods and it's it's literally you can draw a line literally on one side of the hill there's mansions on the other side of the hills there's townships or yeah essentially right so i think that there's so much that needs to be unpacked and even specifically um i wanted to ask your opinion um on this spin that some western news outlets have taken and they've tried to make it seem like an ethnic violence sort of thing so they're saying that you know what this is um uh, i think it was uh, the zulus who are in support of zuma and uh this could have been one of the reasons why they're taking to the streets i mean what, what, what are your thoughts about that yeah i think that's very very lazy reporting um using such a lens um on on this it emits so many serious uh complex uh, layered issues that are a part of this i think what it attempts to do is see the continent and specifically south africa through the colonial lenses, uh, post-colonial lenses of uh, tribalism and corruption and these big uh, words that are flung at the continent from Europe. Um, I think we're very lazy reporting. Um, what it attempts to do in a way as well is that KwaZulu-Natal uh, at the turn of democracy, uh, there definitely was an outbreak of violence at the time. Um, and what we saw was an unwillingness or, or a reluctance of the, uh, a large party, political party in KwaZulu-Natal, the Nkata Freedom Party, to partake in the democratic elections. And that led to a lot of violence. So I think also playing onto this trope of uh, Zulu people as militaristic or violent, it's a very facile trope. Um, I think what it omits as you've mentioned, is the deep-seated inequality in South Africa. It really dances around that. And the past week has exposed so many fault lines in South African society. Um, inequality is certainly one of them. I think the images of what we're seeing was, it was to use a, a term from the Russian uh, philosopher Mikhail Bakhtin, it was a carnivalesque day. So in his, in his view, such a day that the carnival is a time where society is inverted. Um, and we see this, we saw this inversion uh, in terms of the, the, the footage of luxury goods moving through black townships, uh, which is a place where 
where in terms of the economic um, demographics of people in black townships wouldn't be seen every day. Um, I, I think, yeah, it really, the inequality, the spatial segregation that you're mentioning, this is a fault line that, that the, the protests have um, exposed. I think another fault line that has not been spoken about as openly is the racism in South Africa that is not, I think a lot of people are saying that the racial tensions and uh, barric uh, racial profiling of barricading suburbs and checking entrance, asking for proof of address for people when coming into mainly white uh, upper class suburbs is just a result of, of this inequality. I think my view is that it's the cause of this inequality a recalcitrance on the part of the mainly white upper class to transform South African society. Um, and I think that if we had seen over the past 30 years, if we had seen more attempts uh, by white owned companies to mentor uh, black and brown workers, not just in a laboring sense, but in a management sense um, and in a leadership sense, we didn't have as deep inequality as is present. Uh, so it really has exposed these fault lines. And I think it's look in the mirror time for many, many South Africans, especially uh, those who are on the live on the tiny slice of privilege that South African society offers them. Tiny as in a small percentage of the population but large as in it offers so much access, opportunity, resources, and wealth. Uh, looking back, just looking back to the most, I think for me, the most startling uh, statistics of the 1913 uh, Natives Land Act, where 8% of South African land was given to uh, 70 plus percent of the population. That inversion of almost seven to 70 uh, is, is a real, symbolic reflection of inequality in South Africa. Yeah, and I think that if you look at it from a lens of inequality, it actually starts to make more sense. And I think people need to realize when people say that, oh, you know, apartheid ended 30 years ago, any historian, any sociologist, or anyone that is dealing with or studying social contexts knows that 30 years is not a long time. It's the blink of an eye. Even if, I guarantee you, even if there was some effort made to redistribute resources in an equitable fashion, as was promised by the ANC in 1994, even if that was happening, we'd still have signs of post-apartheid inequality in South Africa. And that's a fact. And now, in the absence of those reforms, or at least those propositions to redistribute resources, whether they be economic, whether they be land, etc., Right? The fact that there's an absence of that means that there's a clear gap between the white population and the black population. So even when the news starts to report it as, oh, it's a tribal thing, as you said, it's very, very much colonial. And you're, you're basically just deciding to walk past the big elephant in the room, which is apartheid still very much exists in an economic form and also in a legal form. Right, who has access to those resources. <clears throat> so even if we look at it from that perspective of, you know, 
can't remember the statistic, but it's that, um, you know, over 80% of the land or 70, 70 to 80% of the land is owned by the white population. And uh, this is arable land. And obviously the white population is a very small minority. Even if you look at, you know, for example, people might be like, oh wait, but now you have a black government in South Africa. Governance is only one piece of the puzzle. You have to look at it in a holistic fashion and you actually have to see that society does not just exist in a binary system of, oh, this is the government and this is the economy, right? There's both public and private spheres of life and they intersect. So as a government, you may be able to set laws, but at the end of the day, people who have the money also make decisions, right? If you want to look uh, deeper into companies such as De Beers, right? Or if you want to look into certain rich families and look at how they were able to attain their wealth, and you can basically draw a straight line from that wealth to apartheid. Additionally, for those people, those uh, Black people who today might be living in a township or they might be living in a lower income neighborhood, right? If you draw, you can draw a straight line from that all the way back to education and perhaps even the Bantu education that was happening in South Africa during the apartheid period. Because if you think about it, you can't just say that the laws have changed if society doesn't keep up with those laws. You can't design laws for a post-racial society when the effects of racism still exist. You can't expect it to work, right? Because if people were educated to the same level as white South Africans just before apartheid, we might not have been having this issue today. But people who are deprived of that necessary education came out and they had to perhaps get that's when you start to see class stratification, right? And many of the rich Black South Africans, many, not all, but many are actually involved in government and not the private sphere. So this is the key thing we need to, to look at. And I feel like if we want to go back to how people were reporting it, um, I think it was quite lazy as well. I mean, there needs to be quite a bit more of, you know, some analysis given to you know, the social stratification that's happening. And actually even speaking on that, I mean, I came across a video on WhatsApp and I wanted to get your opinion and you've probably seen it, but there's a couple of videos of uh, this white and also uh, some colored uh, people sort of taking up arms and they were using them against uh, people who are trying to loot the certain stores, right? I'm not sure if you've seen the video, um, but yeah, there's that, it's happening. And like, I think one of them in the video says, it was totally disrespectful and racist said oh you see black people are coming for our stores right and yeah that's basically what was said so i just wanted to, to know like you know what what is your opinion on you know people obviously taking up arms and what what exactly who's been taking up arms and like how have they been using it against other populations in south africa yeah i haven't yet seen that video but such scenes have been playing out across South Africa over the, across Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal, uh, where mainly white upper-class suburbs have been barricaded, uh, sometimes in a very rudimentary fashion. You just see branches from thorn trees uh, across the road. And uh, people have been uh, checked upon entry, sometimes to their own suburbs. They've been asked to produce proof of address, um, and so on. So there's that form of exclusion firstly, and then there's the more violent form of exclusion, as you mentioned, uh, with actual live rounds being fired at people. Um, I had a chat with a friend of mine who stays in Durban. We grew up together 
Um, and it's quite funny because both of us, we grew up uh, with a shared love for, for hip hop, a lot of which uh, in some ways uh, exposed violence of US, the US system itself, gun violence in many ways. And he, yet both of us have never held uh, a, a gun uh, itself. And yet he was speaking about his neighbors who at the community policing forum would just walk up to the community policing forum with shotguns and all sorts of ammunition. He said he had no, his, his words were, he had no idea his neighbors were packing heat. Um, and I think in a way, he, what he, he mentioned was, it's an opportunity for, sort of for, for such people now, uh, a seeming justification for their violence against black people. Uh, and what we're seeing is a, a readiness, a preparation, people to pull up arms at this, at this point in time. Uh, funnily enough, the people that he was speaking about were white, in no way reflecting I think Nelson Mandela's injunction at democracy to, to throw your arms in the sea. We, we see very little of that here. We see people ready and willing to attack, attack black people, uh, shoot at black people uh, and with no accountability as well. Uh, we see the looters, we see people who have been looting being arrested. We don't see people who have been firing at black people being arrested. Uh, so with impunity, with no accountability, uh, with a seeming skewed sense that what they're doing is justified. Um, yeah, it's really quite, quite shocking. But as you mentioned, not surprising. It is symbolic of an attempt to hold on to, to protect wealth that is not being redistributed. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I mean, obviously what I'll just tell people is that obviously if you feel like there is a, uh, someone that is threatening your life and that threat is imminent right that is the conditions under which like you can use a lethal force right but even like if i if you look deeper into like the way if the videos right one thing that i noticed is that yeah you have like you know some protesters right the distance is still far right and like these these are unknown like they obviously they some of them have rocks and some are throwing it at the, those certain people etc um but it's not like they're even like, you know, firing warning shots or firing at their feet. They're literally shooting to kill, which for me was, was, it was concerning because I've, I've handled firearms before. I like, I've done like, you know, rifle club, etc. We know how serious it is. Like, you know, even just being in front, like you're told, like, don't cross the specific line. And like, I've been around, like, you know, those, like, you know, just hearing the crackles, etc. And like, I'll even just tell you guys, um, my own personal experience, we had to go behind so that we could, you know, put, pull up the target and pull down for the people who are shooting. And just seeing like the bullet hit the sand and smoke come out of the sand, that's the that's the only time in my life that I can say for sure, like that I was actually scared. Like, you know, some people you just see in the movies, you know, someone gets shot, whatever. But people don't realize how serious, even getting shot or like, not even just getting shot, if a live round passes like your, your arm, like doesn't touch your arm, you can still get a burn, right? So these guys were shooting directly at them. No warning shots, no nothing, right? I think for me, that's obviously that's something worrying, right? And as I said, like, you know, if someone is deaf, there's an imminent threat to your life, that's when you can obviously use lethal force. <coughs> but it's just a bit concerning, as you said, that, you know, there's a certain class of people who are probably been using those guns for like game hunting, etc. you know, that very upper class sport, right? 
um, that just that preparedness to be able to go and just like, you know, fire live rounds at people, not even just warning shots. Like that for me was concerning, right? But also it speaks to, you know, uh, the South African police department and the fact that they were understaffed. And they literally said in some areas, like you can't, we're not going to be able to help you. You have to defend yourself. So obviously, yeah, I understand like, uh, if, if there was any sort of threat, like, you know, you, lethal force should be the last option. But these guys are just literally trigger happy going for it. That's one of the things. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit more complex than just saying, okay, yeah, you can defend yourself. But obviously, um, even in self-defense and a court of law, like you have to show and like prove that that was literally, you had to take that option. So I think for me, it's just, once again, it's really literally highlighting those inequalities that we talked about and the right across race. Because the people who are doing this, it was usually white people who can who are bearing those arms and also um, it was colored people who also were bearing those arms, right? And um, for me, it just speaks to a larger question of, you know, when Franz Fanon brought up this idea of if you have a system imposed by way of violence, you have to you know, use violence to undo that system. And he speaks about that when he's talking about colonialism. So obviously, Franz Fanon is not just talking about physical violence, because to view violence as only physical is very narrow, right? So I think that it's, it's a sign that, you know, these protests, the way they fled into riots, right? It was a sign of people saying that, you know, we're going to take back what hasn't been given to us, right? And that's perhaps why you're seeing uh, people going and getting all these different luxury goods. It's a statement of trying to break that class divide that we've br briefly talked about. And that's why I mentioned South Africa as a ticking time bomb. And if the government doesn't act quick enough, and I'll go back, I'll refer to a Julius Malema interview that he had with, I think, I think it was TRT, right? When he said, uh, although I first misunderstood the statement, he did say, uh, we're not calling for the unsolicited violence against, against white people yet, right? <laughs> I didn't understand what he was saying originally, but what he was perhaps alluding to was a race war. And after seeing what has happened with these riots and obviously the responses, whether they be justified or not, right? For example, if someone had a, the, the, their life was under threat and they used lethal force, right? That's different. But regardless of, it is entirely possible that a race war in South Africa could break out along class lines. And I don't think it's something that's far-fetched in my opinion, right? And obviously this is subject to what the government decides to do. And obviously you've seen like, you know, the EFF has been gaining more support. It's showing that people are not really, you know, following the ANC's logic anymore of, you know, this is what we're going to do. And people are starting to move more towards other parties. And like, I think there's another, um, there was another party, I can't remember the, the name of the party, maybe you can help me, uh, Dashan, uh, but it was, I think it's Black Land First. I can't remember the, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the fact that you have parties like this coming up, it tells you what is going on in South Africa. And I think there's, there's more that we need to you know, look into, but what are, what are your thoughts on that whole dynamic? Yeah, I think for such parties and their uh, resurgence or, or, or growth over the past few years, I think politics is about selling a dream. It's not about selling reality. And we need to analyze what dream is being sold by these parties, I think with the EFF, um, there's a grand narrative, a grand dream being sold of uh, 
equitable redistribution of land and access to the South African economy. Uh, I think we've seen very little policy detail, as with most politics, uh, regarding how that will happen. But I think there's increasing support. It's been exponential if you look at the, the last two elections, the way that the support have, has grown from about 4% to now 11% of parliament. What, what you're seeing there is how necessary that dream is equitable redistribution of land and economic access and opportunities. Uh, that's the reason their support is growing, not necessarily because of the strength of the party, but because of the, the need of that dream. Um, I think going, going back a little bit to the, the, the issue of violence, phenomenon violence in society, I think in the South African imagination, very recent still is the Marikana massacre. And I think that there we saw a state's police force, uh, black officers firing on black protesters. And that, that was very strong in the imagination of the South African media. What is fascinating is we haven't seen so, so much footage on South African news channels of what we've been speaking about now, these barricades, mainly white and brown vigilante groups uh, with live rounds and, and ammunition and so on. Um, it's, it's it's in the, in the apartheid imagination or post-apartheid imagination. There's a myth among some white South Africans. The the night of the, the quite laughable for me. The night of the long knives. Uh, it was an urban legend that when Nelson Mandela died, black and brown South Africans would uh, rise up and uh, attack and 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 kill and. Uh, push out white South Africans in 2013, we saw very little of it. If anything, we saw we saw gestures of unity from black and brown South Africans the day that Nelson Mandela died. And uh, I saw a news uh, on the news um, in La Lucia, which is a mainly white upper-class uh, suburb in Durban. And uh, uh, the interviewee, a, a person who was at one of these checkpoints said, this is it, this is, this is the moment we've been waiting for. It's happening now, it's happening as though this, this uh, a civil war by black South Africans against white South Africans was, was about to happen. It, uh, but if you look at South Africa as a whole, if we just zoom out a bit, I know we've been very heavily zoomed into these protests. If we just zoom out a little bit, what we're seeing is two provinces out of nine that have been affected, very minuscule compared to the rest of South Africa functioning quite according to its everyday realities. Um, no real sense of a civil war or a coup d'etat, uh, strong attacks on the economy and the state and people's livelihoods, but, but not uh, near the alarmist or sensationalist discourse that a lot of white South Africans, and I must say brown South Africans have been using as well. This, it's a humanitarian crisis. It's, it's going to spill out into, you're gonna see starvation in the, in the next, a uh, few weeks and uh, what's fascinating for me is it's because it's the first time that these white and brown South Africans have had their own everyday realities destabilized a little bit. Oh, you have to wait a few hours for uh, a loaf of bread. Some people in South Africa have to wait days for a loaf of bread because they don't have the money to buy it. And what we're seeing here is the first time they're touched and then ooh, big stories now, big drama.
You know what I also find interesting, and if you want to look at it from an international perspective, I am actually I mean, this this sort of links to you know this idea of um, you know black unity and the fact that a colonial order is an international order, right? People think that it's often something that is just isolated to a few countries, but I think this example that I'm going to bring up is very pertinent and very worrying. Right, because it shows how people want to push their own agendas. So I actually recall Fox News reporting, and they actually chose that clip of people bearing arms, and you know they were essentially in shooting at um, the rioters, right? Uh, the light browns, and etc. etc. Right, and what I'm taking from this is why would Fox News want to report on this? Of course, it's pushing this idea of Second Amendment rights, yeah, of, you know, right to bear arms. Do you see how it's working in other countries? That's the first point. And second point, do you see what happens when these Black people are uncontrolled or when they're left to rule their own? Like, it's very subtle, right? I think for me, it's very subtle. And I can see the, the, the agenda based on Fox News and how they've been able to report, right, in the past, you know, uh, 10, 15 years, their style of reporting, for me, this it's very black and white. It's very clear what they're trying to get at. And um, for me, that speaks to a larger issue of, you know, this idea of, you know, black people want your wealth. They want, you know, the black men specifically, or are these violent creatures that just essentially want to overthrow society. They want to put society into turmoil, etc. And that's something that I thought was really, really interesting to just reflect upon. Like, why would Fox News choose this? Um, yeah, I think that uh, any 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 media with any form of media representation, there's selective editing that's happening. There's a certain time frame, there's a certain time limit in what can be shown, and often there's an agenda or an ideology behind what is being presented. Uh, I think you know, we need to definitely question. I, you've put it quite well there. The choices for that footage by by Fox News and sort of their their personal ideologies as a news channel. I think we also need to look at selective editing ourselves because media has become democratized uh, in a digital era. Uh, we ourselves can share footage and present to our friends and family what we want them to see. Uh, so we need to also uh, track and, and note what we're receiving in terms of the footage that we are receiving. I think to change tack, are we just receiving images of violence and 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 then and, and so on or are we seeing uh footage of rebuild essay campaigns of everyday south africans uh clearing up the damage that has been done uh, of making sandwiches and cups of coffee and tea for the police that have been working in their areas um rebuild sa started about a week ago by melda masango uh, a resident of Soweto, and in a week, she's got 50,000 volunteers uh, on, on this group. It's a, a Facebook group called Rebuild SA. Um, are we seeing footage of that? Are we seeing pictures of that, um, of, uh, which in many ways challenges that uh, racist colonial narrative of, of uh, uncontrollable Black people here? We see a sense of unity, uh, of togetherness, of care for community. Uh, in a lot of these these cleanup SA and rebuild SA uh, campaigns that have begun, we've seen in with rebuild SA construction firms offering free services to 
to small business owners to rebuild, um, everything from that to yoga services being offered to help people deal with the, some of the trauma or tension over the past few days. So yeah, where do we see, when, when, when will Fox News talk about Rebuild SA, I suppose is, is the question. And also I think for us as media producers ourselves, we're not just media consumers, we share. So what are we sharing? What, are we, what balance are we offering to the narrative as well? That's a very good point. And if anything, what I've noticed about Western news channels specifically is they try to centralize the idea of calamities, poverty, violence, and you know, poverty, yeah, poverty as well. Just they try to centralize it on the African continent as if we are the only ones with issues, which I find is so problematic because I, I don't think people really understand, for example, you know, the way they'll report on this compared to the way you report on something like the Capitol being stormed by majority white people, keep in mind, with guns, right? Imagine if that was an African country, right? I mean, imagine if that was an African country. Even you can see the way, I mean, they'd just be like, oh, you know, rebels. They literally call them, like, look at the terms they'd be using. Rebels, terrorists, right? Storm a government building in West Africa. And then they, they will deliberately, like, you know, leave out the country's name. They'll just say West Africa or they'll say Ghana and they'll use really violent pictures, like, you know? But here you can clearly see the way they tried to soften it because it's, it's an embarrassment, right? Even when they were, they were reporting about Black Lives Matter, only focusing on the riots. And it was, I mean, there was a statistic, I think it was from a New York Times, um, you know, research editorial. And uh, they concluded that only 7% of those riots turned, I mean, the protests turned violent, right? So why was there no reporting on that? And also, why was there no reporting on the people who are trying to run through the crowds with the, the, the trucks, right? And I was, I was also speaking to someone else. <coughs> Her name is Sasha Wartenhood. Uh, she's quite prominent in the activist scene in Cape Town. And she was describing how essentially you have people who are carrying borderline Nazi flags, you know, white supremacist flags to a protest that was to do with essentially domestic violence. They're protesting against domestic violence. Uh, but you have these people who are saying, oh, farm lives matter, right? And uh, it has nothing to do with the discourse surrounding, you know, domestic violence, right? So it just tells you so much about, you know, the white fragility that's going on and perhaps the, the colonial lens through which the world views Africa as a whole. And it, it's, it's almost as if the West is free from this. And I, I remember actually I had a conversation with someone here in Kenya and because um, I do a lot of work in the UK with uh, people who have suffered either name blind, I'm sorry, name discrimination based on race on the job applications or, or address based uh, <clears throat> discrimination because they'll be like, oh, immigrants live in this area. So subconsciously, I'm not going to hire you. So I was working with people who came from economically deprived backgrounds, essentially. That's the work that we're doing. But when I spoke to another Kenyan and I told them that in the UK, there is poverty, they got shocked, right? So, I mean, this is again something, and I don't wanna you know, go, go too far off, but if you want to go about how the, the, the media sort of pushes this narrative or the colonial narrative, it really warps the way we were viewing current affairs in Africa, especially what's happening in South Africa right now. 
because they're trying to sell it the way Western media is trying to sell it. A lot of them are trying to sell it as if white people are being oppressed in a black majority government. In fact, Australia, actually, I think one of the, the ministers in Australia offered white people asylum, <laughs> you know, because of the, the farm murders and everything. I mean, it, it just speaks to a lot of what's going on around the world and, uh, you know, how this colonial lens is really just warping the reality of things. Yeah, you, I think you bring up a great point there about how different countries, uh, especially I think the global north is, will report, choose to report on events um, and the language that is used for such events. I think another example that springs to mind is if you look at international media coverage, I've been just tracking on in, in Dutch channels and French channels of what's happening in Cuba, the protests in Cuba right now, and the protests in South Africa. And I think uh, the protests in Cuba are strongly being focused on. And in a way, uh, a friend of mine shared the perspective that it's uh, creating the notion of a failed socialist state. And the reason why there's been uh, very decreased uh, coverage of South Africa is South Africa is this, supposed to be this paragon of new capitalism and the success of new capitalism. So rather than showing, showing that, focus on the, the failed socialist state in the, from the view of, of, of um, the French and Dutch media. I, I saw a really uh, unwarranted news clip as well that popped into my YouTube newsfeed. I wonder, YouTube's racial profiling here, but it was WION, an Indian news channel. And what caught my attention was uh, Indians under attack in South Africa. <laughs> And I sort of, okay, let's see, let's see what's going on, uh, opened it and it completely spun uh, the protests, uh, the recent protests, uh, and I think into ra racialized attacks on brown South Africans and KwaZulu-Natal. If anything, we've seen brown South Africans uh, inflict racism on black South Africans in areas such as Phoenix, where uh, black South Africans who live in Phoenix have been have been profiled, um, chased away from areas that they live in due to these community barricades that vigilante groups have set up. So if anything is the opposite. Um, and just watching the news reporting, it was mainly, the reporting was mainly that uh, Indian businesses have been under attack. Uh, businesses have been <laughs> under attack. Black-owned businesses in townships in Johannesburg have been under attack. All sorts of businesses have been under attack. So to just pick a morsel and hone in on that as coverage, uh, just uh, again, quite, I don't know, on one hand, it's furthering an ideology. And on the other hand, we live in a digital age where what's shocking gets views. And therefore, uh, it's, uh, trying to hop on sensationalist ideas. If you, if you say Indians under attack on an Indian news channel and already in a country that is seething with Hindu nationalism, you have an audience of a billion ready to give you views for such, for such a video as well. The, the reporting was very myopic. Uh, it missed so many issues, didn't touch on uh, class divides between brown and black South Africans. Uh, that the, the racial hierarchy of apartheid created, although certainly apartheid was a system to brutalize and oppress 
black and brown South Africans, but it came itself with an embedded hierarchy. And a little bit more was spent on brown schools. A little bit more was spent on brown clinics than black and black black schools and clinics. Uh, and we see that racial hierarchy, that apartheid racial hierarchy playing out again. Still, uh, very little self-reflection, I must say, out of people who look like me in this country about their own racism. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think I'll just touch on two points and then perhaps we can just go into closing statements and uh, close off. But even if we if we refer back to the video, I like the, the fact that you brought up that, you know, the ideas of, oh, Indians are under attack, right? And I mean, in that video that, that we're talking about where the guy was like, oh, you know, Black people coming to loot our businesses, right? And, you know, keeping in mind, these guys are also Muslims, right? Because I'm also Muslim, right? And obviously Islam is categorically against any form of racism. And the fact that, you know, what I don't, what, I, what I've been looking into, especially with my surveys, um, is the fact that they, they, they sort of gave this impression that Islam was only for their ethnicity. They couldn't see a Black person as a Muslim, right? Especially when they're talking about, oh, you know, Black people coming to lose our businesses. And the other person was actually referring to uh, one specific battle where the Prophet, peace be upon him, was surrounded by people that were trying to invade a city, right? And, you know, what is, what are the, you know, the connotations of that? Like, uh, I mean, it, it felt as if, like, you know, they were, they were trying to make it seem as if there was no Muslims amongst that crowd. And in all likelihood, they must have been. Right, that's another thing that uh, I noticed that was very, very odd <laughs> as a black Muslim, just like listening to people make those references, right? So uh, in terms of this us them mentality, it seems to even transcend religious boundaries and also racial boundaries, which I found very, very interesting. And also just if we wanted to focus, for example, on, you know, Africa as a whole, if we to zoom out, uh, I can definitely tell you that there's many, I mean, I mentioned that South Africa is a ticking time bomb, but there's so many different countries in Africa that are ticking time bombs. And if anything, many countries in the global South are a ticking time bomb. And I don't think that if you're a political analyst, like you cannot ignore the realities that are happening on the ground. And what are the realities? The realities is that uh, a lot of different groups and some individuals, especially if your country did not fight and like, you know, uh, essentially drive out the colonizers, if you engaged in some sort of, you know, independence agreement, then there's going to be a problem. Number one, the first issue that we see in many countries is borders, right? I mean, I, I need to do more research into this, but many people have actually mentioned that, uh, for example, areas such as Nakuru Naivasha should actually belong to Uganda. Right, then there's also another place in Kenya called the Northern Frontier District, and that apparently is also supposed to belong to Somalia. Then there's the issue between Somaliland and Somalia as well, right? And these, these border disputes are not just limited to East Africa, right? If you look at the different ethnicities and the different social, as I mentioned, social stratifications that have been put in place in different countries, for example, Cameroon, Anglophones and Francophones, that is causing violence, you know? intense violence right and the same thing for western sahara morocco that entire dispute over the land there is so much that is going on that is literally direct colonialism is directly responsible for this but one that also people neglect to focus on <coughs> is perhaps this 
Um, in most colonial states, there's either been a merchant class that has been installed or there is a political class that has been installed. So for example, certain individuals in Kenya, right, will own vast amount of lands. And in, in fact, it's very, very few families, right? And the same thing in other countries as well, right? Whether that be Nigeria, et cetera, where certain families or certain individuals will own large amounts of land, right? And they essentially, you find they, they even monopolies or like they, they own certain companies that do work on that land and they end up being the, the richest people in those countries, right? And for example, even in South Africa, the um, it was more or less like people who came from India and also Indonesia, etc., Cape Malay, all those people occupied a merchant class that was wedged between white people and black people, right? And those effects were sort of like they, they, they lasted through the end of apartheid, the legal ending of apartheid, right? And the same thing for Uganda, Idi Amin expelled Indians on account that they'd been installed as a merchant class by the British. But also people don't realize that the Buganda tribe, by the way, the leaders and the chiefs of the Buganda tribe were rewarded and given pieces of land because they cooperated with the British. And this is, this is something that's definitely happened in different parts where certain tribes have been favored over others. So I think what, what we were learning from all of this is that a lot of these issues can directly be linked to colonialism. And we're entering that stage where it's like, the colonizers were so shrewd that their system could run on autopilot without, without them even being there. And for me, that's really unfortunate. And I think we need to look into sustainable ways of trying to, in, in some ways, reverse that. Because now, obviously, we have people who have been born into this lifestyle and who may not even agree with the, the inequalities, right? Who may not like the system, right? But the question becomes, how do you create that equity? And what are the effects of doing that quickly? What are the effects of doing that slowly? And I think that if, we can, if we're able to answer that question, we'll be able to solve so many different issues uh, that are currently affecting African countries today. Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing over the... Yeah, what we're seeing in a way is also, I just want to take, take back to the idea of the colonizers being shrewd. In South Africa, there's also the sense of an apartheid sp spatial planning and so on, uh, that being very foresighted and, and having a long legacy. I wouldn't want to give the planners of apartheid or colonial structures uh, uh, the label of being shrewd. I think they were not intelligent enough for that label. I think rather what it, what it shows is the strength of habit formation and inertia of systems. So the longer that a habit stays in place, the longer, the more, dif the more inertia there will be in unraveling it. Um, and with colonial systems, we've seen 300 plus years of this. So that takes a lot of unraveling. Um, I, I, I think what, what we're seeing now, it's, it's a South African uh, researcher, Angelo Fick, speaks about what we're seeing here is 21st century problems, food insecurity, uh, limited access to land, monopolization of land by very few individuals. Um, these, I think, are you know, it, also the failure of a capitalist global agenda, which has just stretched inequality to its widest limits. Uh, where pe 
we, we live in a world where people don't have access to the, to the land that they are working and farming on, but we have people that can go to space and have a party in space just because they want to. Uh, that's how far this inequality has been stretched. People who don't have earth and people who have so much earth, they can go to space. Um, so I think Angelo Fick just mentions that this is, these are 21st century problems, what we're seeing now. And the 21st century has been, it has, has been marked by a colonial capitalist agenda. So this South Africa is this ticking time bomb, as you've called it, it's, and as you've rightly said, it's not the only ticking time bomb. Uh, that self-reflection that I was speaking about earlier needs to be picked up by a lot of people throughout the global South because this turning point, there's so many strong opportunities for people in the global South now to, to build and flourish. Uh, we're seeing a move away from fossil fuels uh, and energy that relies on such sources. Think about the global South and the, the wind, the solar capacity that so many of these countries have. Morocco is taking a leading step in that, in that 30% or so of the energy is really moving towards solar and wind. Uh, how, how can we change tack quickly? move quickly as the global south towards such renewable energy resources. We're seeing the failure of GMO cropping and mass scale farming, seeing a return to indigenous organic methods of farming. How can we uh, revitalize that knowledge that the global south has about uh, biodiversity of, of uh, crops and animals in farming? I think this is this, the failure of the, the neoliberal capitalist system is an opportunity for the global south to revitalize uh, its own practices and values. Um, yeah, so taking time bomb, but I think we have the ability and capacity to defuse. Do we have the will, uh, given how strong the inertia of the system currently is? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Dashan for being able to to make it on today and uh, thank you so much again uh, for your insights your unique insights it's been a learning experience as well for me and in closing for me I'll perhaps also just clarify when I mention uh, the idea of shrewd <laughs> I, I do not mean it in any uh, sense of being a compliment I think it just comes from <clears throat> a place of deep-seated evil uh, because you know uh, the, the interesting thing about difference is that difference can be either a source of understanding and cohesion and community or difference can be the source of discord right and violence and that's exactly what they chose to exploit and i mean it's been really interesting for me seeing how those systems were not just unique to certain parts of Africa, for example. Uh, when I did my podcast on connecting the colonial experience, I was able to get a couple of indigenous people from the US and indigenous people from Australia to see what the experiences have been like in those specific spheres. And I think that um, just observing colonialism as a whole on a global scale, it truly tells you like, um, the the limits or like you know how far people are willing to go to secure profit or to secure that comfort or just to emphasize that superiority complex of theirs and i like the way you mentioned for example 
that idea of people becoming so rich or having so much earth that they could go to space because for me it's it's so shocking and like you know people think that this is something uh the idea of a free market right um like you know standing on its own or just being unregulated they said oh it can just be fair but the, the whole point is that if you if you read ultimate like you know a uh, full on liberal or like neoliberal literature um someone like let's say robert nozick right the entire arguments are they they essentially they presume the fact that it's an equal playing field even if you read someone's work like john rawls they acknowledge that inequalities can happen but they've literally colonized the literature because it's not it's not the same it's it's not the same even if you want to look at african countries today i've had the privilege of looking at the effects of colonialism in uh, the modern day world and how till today the inequalities that we're seeing on an economic level especially from an international point of view are directly linked to trade agreements and infrastructure gaps that were caused by colonialism and this is exactly why this this idea of foreign aid why it's not working all these different things and the thing is um i mean perhaps i'll do an episode on this but leaders of the world came together to to actually try and stop that i mean that's why you can go into 1970s you can see the oil producing companies decided to to raise the prices because they were like hey no right if you want if you don't want to give us this opportunity to determine the prices of our commodities then we'll do this right and like uh, you can clearly see uh, obviously you know unfortunately that plan wasn't able to work because of again divide and conquer i will do another podcast on that but just seeing how these colonial systems function it's it's really been it's really been really interesting for me to just look into that but it's also quite kind of depressing and just like looking at how we can be able to reverse what's already happened or just do some form of damage control and that's possibly something we'll look into in the next episodes we might also look into you know other uh, current affairs issues but once again guys thank you so much for listening um and i encourage you to do more research on south africa and uh, as usual talk to people who are on the ground get those authentic perspectives listen to those balanced narratives and try as much as possible to fight your own individual biases when reading on the story thanks again uh dashan for making it on and we're going to end the episode here and we'll see you next week